Well, this morning, I want to invite my friend Candace up here to share with you a little. What is the cry of your heart? Um, this is a question that a team leader asked as we were doing four weeks of training um, in California before we prepared to go to North Africa. Um, as she said that, she told us that that morning we'd be reading Psalm 142, and she wanted us to read it over and over again and then have time of silence and prayer and um, it was in that moment that it hit me. <laughs> I had decided to, to leave my job that I had been at for six years here in Unit 4, teaching, uh, to go into the unknown. Um, I didn't know what grade I was going to teach, and I didn't know what it would be like living in a culture predominantly Islamic. Um, yeah, I felt compelled to go. Um, from the moment I interviewed and said yes, like God opened every door, like literally, like excuses I came up with, (laughs) he kind of shot those down and um, just every aspect of it financially, just support from friends and family, it just made a difference. Um, In this moment, in the, on the floor, in that room reading the Bible, um, after reading Psalm 42, I'm just going to read you um, from my journal what I wrote that day, July 30th, 2009. Psalm 142, verse 1 and 5. I cried to the Lord with my voice. With my voice did I make my supplication. I cried to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. My cry is to be set free from myself. I have doubts and fears and hang-ups, unforgiveness, jealousy, and the list goes on. All these things prevent me from seeing what you see in me and in others. I get so frustrated with myself consistently and assume that you and others are frustrated with me, my performance, my flaws, my personality. So to make up for this, I apologize profusely and internalize negative thoughts about myself while masquerading as this person who has it all under control. But I can't hide anymore. And I have some questions for you, God. Here's my cry. Will you be my control? Will you be my solace? Will you be my perfection? Will you be my self-acceptance? Will you be my freedom and confidence? Sure, steadfast hold. Will you be my protection? Please be those in my heart and life from this moment on. And in the silence, I felt this flood of God speaking into my spirit. I am. I am with you always until the end of the age. I will never leave you or forsake you. I am the Lord your God. I will hold your right hand, saying, Do not fear, for I am with you. When you call, I will answer, and while you are yet speaking, I will hear. Then he led me to Exodus 4 and 11. It says, The Lord said to him, Who gave man his mouth? Who makes him deaf or mute? Who gives him sight or makes him blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and will teach you what to say. And then Exodus 3.13, Moses said to God, Suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, What is his name? Then what shall I tell them? 
God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. This is my name forever, the name by which I am to be remembered from generation to generation. After that time of silence, all the teachers gathered together and we were sharing out. And this theme just pervaded everybody's hearts and as we were sharing out. And we knew right then all of the fears or ideas we had about why we were going or how we were going to get there, what we were going to do once we got there, all that started to fade away. And one of the teachers, I have it in quotes, she said, you know, I don't want to come from this experience, away from this experience, barely surviving. I want to know that I was able to find joy in the experience. And it was that that um, helped me to commit even to a second year. And so, God entered the cry of my heart. What is the cry of your heart? That's an important question, isn't it? Because it touches on our motives. It touches on why we do what we do. It touches on why we're even here this morning. Why are you here this morning? What's the cry of your heart? Um, you have just heard a word from a beloved sister in Christ and the cry of her heart uh, as a humble, dependent child of the Father. What's the cry of your heart? Is it the humble, dependent cry of a child who wants to trust our Heavenly Father? Is it a heart of trust? Um, Or is it a heart that is tempted to test God, to make him want to prove himself to you, to prove himself reliable to you? A testing heart or a trusting heart? Someone talked to me out in the foyer before this service and said, Randy, what's the difference between a heart that trusts God versus a heart that tests God. And I want to talk about that this morning. I want to talk about the the temptation of testing God. If you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn to the New Testament book of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at verses 5 through 7. It's on page 683 of your church Bibles It's in the pouch in front of you. If you don't have a copy of God's Word to call your own, just take it, put your name on it, and you can have it as our gift to you. Matthew chapter 4, verses 5 through 7 are verses contained in a paragraph concerning the temptation of Jesus uh, by Satan at the very outset of Christ's ministry uh, as he emerged from the baptismal waters of the Jordan River. The Bible says that the Spirit drove Jesus into the wilderness to be tested, to be tempted by Satan. And this morning, uh, we're going to be looking at this second temptation in Matthew's gospel, the temptation of testing God. Matthew 5, 
excuse me, Matthew 4, 5 through 7. Says, then the devil took him, that's Jesus, to the holy city, that's Jerusalem, and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are God's son, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, it is also written, do not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, this is God's word. And this morning, as we look at these verses, and as we, as we seek to answer the question, what's the cry of my heart? I want us to consider, first, Satan's temptation. What was this temptation that Satan was baiting Jesus? What was he up to there? Uh, and I want you to see as we... Think about Satan's temptation, his particular style of tempting Jesus. He does something there that's just just totally unexpected. We're going to take a look and see what that is. But then I want us to see, secondly, how Christ responded to this lure, this baiting, this temptation uh, that Satan was dangling before his very eyes. How did Jesus respond? Well, we read how he responded. You can see that in the scriptures. But I want, you to, I want you to know that there's a story behind Jesus' response. And we're gonna find out what that story is. And then finally, I want us to see, I want us to see how this applies to our life today. I want, us, I want us to walk away with a take-home truth that we can learn and apply so that we better look like the people of God, the cry of our heart is truly one that trusts God. So, so that's where we're going. Satan, Jesus, you and me. Let's get Satan out of the way, okay? After Satan unsuccessfully tempted Jesus to turn these stones into bread, keeping in mind that he had tempted Christ to eat at the peak of Christ's hunger after his 40-day fast uh, because it was not time for Christ to feast. There was the Father's will that Jesus fast there. And so Satan was unsuccessful in this first temptation. After this, though, he whisks Jesus away uh, to the highest point in the temple, in the holy city of Jerusalem. So they leave this desolated, isolated place, and then they go to this very populated place. Now, whether this was an in-body or out-of-body experience, I don't know. It really doesn't matter. It was real. That's what you need to understand. And, and as the story unfolds, you'll see how real this temptation was. Satan places Jesus at the highest point of the temple. Some of, some of your translations use the word the pinnacle of the temple and literally the wing of the temple. Satan places Jesus at the wing of the temple, this dizzying height. They're not in the isolated wilderness. Now they are there looking over the highly populated temple precincts. And here's what you need to understand. 
as far as the Hebrew mindset was concerned, Jesus, well, Israel was thought of to be in the very center as far as the Hebrew mindset goes. He, uh, Israel was thought of to be the very center of the world. In the very center of Israel was the city of Jerusalem. In the very center of Jerusalem was the temple. And the very center of the temple was, you got it, the wing. So as far as the Hebrew mindset uh, went, Jesus was at the very center of the universe. So this is highly symbolic. And there, high above the populated uh, crowds, uh, uh, Luke says in Luke chapter 4, verse 9 in Luke's gospel, that Satan then said to Jesus, throw yourself down from here. From where? From here, from the very center of of the universe, from the temple. Now, in the Bible, the theme of the temple uh, is all throughout the scriptures because what is a temple after all? It's a meeting place. And so, Adam and Eve, you know, they met God at a meeting place, which was a garden temple. And then when Moses received the law, the Ten Commandments, Where was that meeting place? At Sinai, a mountain temple. And then as God's people were wandering in the wilderness, where did God meet them? At the tent of meeting, the tabernacle. And then Solomon's temple. And then here in Matthew chapter 4, Herod's temple. God had promised that his presence would be manifest at a meeting place. And so Satan says, if you are the son of God, and and that could also be translated, since you are the son of God, what kind of a son are you? What is the cry of your heart, Jesus? Since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. Throw your, and your heavenly father promises to protect you. And then Satan does the most unexpected thing. What does he do? He quotes the Bible. (laughs) Whoa. Now, folks, when the devil starts quoting Scripture, get your radar up. (laughs) Okay? All right? He quotes, he quotes the very psalm that Katie read moments ago, Psalm 91. In fact, you can turn there if you want. It's on page 424 of your church Bible. Psalm 91 is a psalm of protection. Katie read, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will rest in the shadow of the Almighty. Then verse 4 says, He will cover you with His feathers and under His wings. It's no... It's no coincidence that Jesus was standing at the wing of the temple. And Satan quotes from a psalm that says, Under his wings you will find shelter. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. You will not fear the terror of night nor the arrow that flies by day. Verse 7, A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. Verse 9, if you make the most high your dwelling, even the Lord who is my refuge, then no harm will befall you. No disaster will come near your tent. And there it is, verse 11. Satan quotes the Bible. 
For he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. What's he doing? Oh, he's he's baiting Jesus. What kind of a son are you? What's the cry of your heart? Are you not about at the beginning of your ministry here? You've just come through the baptismal waters of the the Jordan River. The Father has, has said, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. What a better place to reveal to the world who you are than to be uh, declared by the pop by the populace, the Son of God. You just fling yourself down and your heavenly Father will send those guardian angels and they will hold you up and this spectacular display of dazzling power will inaugurate the kingdom and expel the Roman infidels. Jump right now. And keep in mind, in the first century, there was this zealot movement, this this movement of, of the zealots. Simon the Zealot, he was one of the apostles. The zealots were this nationalistic group that they were not opposed to using violence as a means of overthrowing their Roman oppressors. And in fact, some of the zealots in their mindset, their mentality was, well, let's just get things started. Let's do an act of violence against the Romans and God from heaven will smile upon us and then he'll finish up the job and do cleanup. Let's go. You see, there Jesus is. The people are below. Satan is baiting him to jump. Satan is baiting Jesus to prove God's reliability by performing this dazzling, miraculous, powerful display. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to do a three and a half year ministry. My plan's much more efficient than God's predetermined plan from before the very foundation of the world. Jesus, now jump. You don't have to go to the cross. Let's go do it. And Jesus refused, didn't he? Hmm. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. So whatever Psalm 91 means, and it is a psalm of protection, So whatever Psalm 91 means, it does not give us permission to put the Lord God to the test. Jesus says it is also written, and in the footnote of your church Bibles, and maybe in your personal Bibles, you can see that Jesus is citing a passage of scripture in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. And that verse was spoken by Moses at the end of the 40 years as the children of the Israelites were about to enter the promised land. Moses gave a farewell sermon. And in that farewell sermon, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16 says, I don't want you to be like your parents as you enter the promised land. Moses said, do not put the Lord your God to the test. And the the entire verse says, as you did at Massah. 
as you did at Massa. Well, what, what happened at Massa? Oh, there's the story I told you I was going to tell you. At Massa. At Massa. Well, after God had delivered the Israelites from uh, Egyptian slavery through ten supernatural signs and wonders, these plagues upon the Egyptian empire, after God had miraculously parted the baptismal waters of the Red Sea and his people went as on dry ground, and after God had collapsed the walls of the Red Sea upon Pharaoh's army, and after God had taken his people and put them in the wilderness and fed them with manna, after they complained, and then fed them with quail, after they complained about just having manna, they grew thirsty. And no, it's not like they said, Moses, uh, our throats are a little dry and parched, put a little too much salt and seasoning on the quail. You think God could, you know, could we please have some water? Just please? They didn't say that. Of course not. We want something to drink. What kind of a leader are you? Have you sent us out into the wilderness to die? Have you sent our children out to the wilderness to die? What's the matter with you, Moses? What's going on? And then in Exodus chapter 17, verse 7, the ultimate slap in the face, the Israelites said, Is the Lord among us or not? Wow. And the Lord said, to Moses, well, Moses, I hear it. Go to the rock at Horeb, take the elders with you, and I want you to strike the rock, and the waters will flow, and my people will be, will be nourished. Their thirst will be quenched. And that's exactly what Moses did. And Exodus chapter 17, verse 7 says that Moses named the place Masa and Meribah. Masa and Meribah. Meribah is Hebrew for quarreling, grumbling, griping, complaining. Masa is Hebrew for testing. Testing. Because there... The Israelites tested the Lord, saying, is the Lord among us or not? To test God is to try to force God's hand to prove himself reliable. That's what it means to test God. To test God is to... Well, it's to play the role of Simon Cowell, where you're the judge. God comes up here on this stage, auditions for you, and you have a predetermined set of expectations that you demand God meet, or else you're going to let him know in no uncertain terms how you feel about him. Who was your vocal coach? Who is your lawyer? You should take your lawyer and sue your vocal coach. That's the worst thing I've ever heard in my life. To test God. 
is to try to force his hand, to make him, try to prove himself reliable to meet your standards. And Jesus said, you shall not test the Lord your God. I wonder if any of us have ever been tempted to do that. I just wonder. Have we? About six years ago, a Ukrainian man shows up at the Kiev Zoo. And in front of a large crowd, he climbs down a rope into a concrete encasement where there are four lions. And in front of a large crowd, he takes off his shoes and he yells at the top of his voice, if God exists, he will save me. And in front of that large crowd, he starts walking toward those lions. One of those lions, a lioness, sees him, stands up, and begins to walk toward him. They lock eyes. There's a brief pause. And then the lioness slaps him down to the ground, swiftly severs his carotid artery, and mauls him to death in front of the large crowd. The zoo officials say, we've never seen anything like this before in our lives. Now, what do you call that? Testing God. Yes. Testing God. That's right. In my hometown, they would call that, that's stupid. Anyway. Yeah. That's what they, that's right. Guy went to stupid state university. That's where he went. Testing God. Ah, ah. A pastor goes to the piano and says, if God exists, I will be able to play the piano as eloquently as Katie Pesson. call that? Painful. <laughs> the pastor went to Painful State University. We're not so silly, are we? Or are we? God, I've been praying and I've been waiting on you to send me a believer to marry and I'm not getting any younger now I mean there's this unbeliever that's coming to my life now and, 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 and you know I, I, I mean they kind of don't believe okay they don't believe in you at all but I mean I kind of like them and they kind of like me and if you want me to marry a believer you need to act. You need to show up. You need to make something happen or else I'm, I could very well just fall in love with this unbeliever and, and, and if things go bad, well, that's going to be on you, God. What do you call that? God, I'm tired of having to pinch 
pennies. I'm tired of having to live on a budget. I mean, God, I mean, I'm getting older and older and retirement's coming and, and now I've just found out about this, this really snazzy investment scheme and I mean, and, and, and it could really, I mean, really have some big returns. I know there's risk involved, but I mean, I'm, you know, I'm gonna go big or go home, you know, so if you don't want me to go home broke, you need to show up, you need to do something, God. Make it happen. I need a sign, I need evidence. You're starting this new PhD program and this is your first semester and, and you say, God, I've got to make it on this class. I need to do well. This class could derail the entire degree program. God, I need evidence. I need a sign. I need you to show up. I need you to do something. God, what do you call that? God, God, I, I, I'm just having a dead end prospecting for new clients. And so here's what I'm going to do, God. I'm just going to start volunteering at the church. I'm going to start just just serving the church and then I'm going to just depend upon you to get those clients in and and so that I can make those uh, presentations and get those sales and get those commissions, uh, Lord. And and if if you want bread on my family's table, well, you got to show up. You got to step up because, you know, I'm serving you now. It's kind of a quid pro quo thing. What do you call that? God, my child is sick. God, I I have friends whose marriage, I mean, the guy's having an affair. Uh, God, my my child's best friend is moving away. I need you to show up. I need you to heal him. I need you to heal the marriage. I need you to bring a new best friend into my child's life. It's time for you to show up. I need you to do that. Let's go. Get to it. What do you call? If any of those scenarios remotely resonates with you, what that means, whether you know it or not, is that you have been whisked to the pinnacle of the temple at dizzying heights, and you have just heard an eloquently delivered sermon by the God of this world, cleverly masquerading as an expository preacher. Jesus says, you must not test the Lord your God. You must not in any way attempt to put him in a situation or force his hand to make him look reliable. And you know what? I, you know, I understand, I, I, I think I understand, at least in my case, what, what's behind this. At least for me, it's the assumption that if I could just have some irrefutable evidence, some indisputable evidence for the existence of God, then, then I could just show the unbeliever this irrefutable evidence and that they would just naturally say, oh, the light would just come on. If I just had that that irrefutable evidence I could show or, 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 or if they just had that supernatural experience, all they really need is just this supernatural sign and then that would seal it for good. And, and it's, it's, it's an innocent desire. It can be, you know, and it can also turn very personal individualized. Oh, Lord, I, I wish I had that 
supernatural, indisputable, irrefutable experience, God. If I could just, if I could just experience the supernatural, if I could just, if I could just go to Narnia for one day, just live, you just let me go to Narnia for one day, I'll come back, I'll come back a better husband, I'll come back a more pleasant person. Sarah's praying, Lord, send him to Narnia. Let him go there. Let him spend a week there, a month, however long. Don't send him to the Philippines. Let him go to Narnia. If I could just have that supernatural experience, then I would come back forever changed. You know, God, forever changed. I mean, am I the only one who's ever thought that, you know? And when I say that, and then I open the Word, the Word says, Randy, I understand. And what you need to understand is that in the pages of God's Word, there was a people who had not just one day of Narnia, but 40 years. 40 years. They saw signs and wonders and supernatural manifestations. They saw signs and plagues upon an empire. They walked through a, a sea as on dry ground. God fed them. God fed them manna from heaven and then quail and then water uh, uh, gushing forth out of a rock in a barren wilderness. Every day they saw the cloud by day and the column of fire by night. Every day these people lived in the supernatural presence of God and they were the most immature people who ever walked the face of this earth. The fact of the matter is Signs and wonders, they often do not engender spiritual growth. They just engender immaturity. God's people saw a sign. They were briefly satisfied. Then they slept and they woke up the next morning. What you done for me lately? That's what happened. You can read about it in the first five books of the Bible. And even Moses was caught up in this. He was, wasn't he? Because God's people were thirsty once again. And in Numbers chapter 20, they quarreled and they complained with Moses. And Moses went to God. They're thirsty again. And God said to Moses, what did he say? All right, I want you to go to the rock. and I want you to speak to the rock and the water will flow. And Moses stood before God's people. And Numbers chapter 20 says he raised a staff. Raised a staff. And he said, must we bring water to you rebels? Bang, rock. Bang, rock. Numbers 20 says, the water gushed forth out of the rock. And the people, the crowd roared. (sighs) Moses. Moses. They cheered. And the Lord was not pleased. He said, I told you to speak to the rock. And you struck it twice. Why did you do that? Why did you do that? And you know what? That touches on maybe, maybe the dark side of why we want the supernatural, you see. It's not that we just want the people to believe irrefutable evidence. It's that we want to be affirmed. We want to be honored. 
We want them to acknowledge that we're right. We're right. We want to be honored in that way. We want glory. God said to Moses, because you did that, you are not going to have the privilege of taking my community into the land of promise. You will die on this side of the Jordan River. Church family, God will share his love with you and he will share his mercy with you and he will share his kingdom with you but he will not, under any circumstances, share his glory. He doesn't share his glory. It's his. And Moses died only seeing the promised land because he tested God. See, He tested God. Can the message be any clearer? You hear what Jesus is saying? Don't test God. Trust God. God. Trust God. Don't don't try to force his hand. Don't try to make him prove himself. God wants us to walk in humble trust without demanding that he do something spectacular to please ourselves or others or some sort of shortcut. Listen, someone said to me something. A dear brother in Christ said, said, gave me this word of wisdom. And I just want to pass this along to you. Sometimes the most aggressive thing you can do in your circumstance is wait on God. Wait on God in humble trust without demanding that he do the spectacular to please yourself, you see. And so Jesus refused to test God because he's not a stunt man. And he didn't go up on the pinnacle of the temple because that's where you were. You were not even at the temple. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 13 says we were outside the temple. We were outside the camp. We were cut off from God. And that's where Jesus went. He went outside the camp, outside the temple, carrying the cross. And just as he did not throw himself down off the pinnacle of the temple, he didn't throw himself down off the cross either because you were outside. He did not come to be a stunt man. He came to seek and save the lost. And so he wants us to humbly trust, trust him no matter what our circumstances are. Because the fact of the matter is, he's already given us a sign. Matthew chapter 12, verse 38 says, Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a miraculous sign from you. And Jesus answered, A wicked and adulterous generation asks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days... And three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The sign of the Son of Man is the cross, Jesus' burial, and the empty tomb. That's the sign. You see, it's no mistake that, you know, the very verse after the verse Satan quoted in Psalm 91, Psalm 91, Satan quoted Psalm 91, 11, and 12, and Psalm 91, 13 says, You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. Jesus did just that in his death and burial and resurrection. So trust him. Trust him. 
and, and whatever you don't have, whatever you don't have, God promises that if we wait someday, we will have everything. Isn't that not what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8, 31 and 32? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? Don't test God, trust God. Sometimes the most aggressive thing you can do is wait on the Lord. Are you doing that? Have you been testing God? You know, each week we've had these little black slips on your paper and we've got these walls out here as a, as just a reminder, a prayer reminder. And, and you know, you don't have to do this if you don't want to, but here in the next song, I, I wonder if you would be willing to just, you know, what's the cry of your heart? Are you, have you been tempted to test God lately? What is that? If you want to, why don't you put that down and you fold that paper and you just let it go and give it to God. You say, God, this is yours. You don't owe me anything. I trust you. Don't test God. Trust God. Amen.